is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. It is the first 13 minutes out of a 42-minute discussion. The entire discussion is available to Partially Examined Life citizens and Patreon supporters who support us at the $5 or up level. To get it, please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Enjoy. Hey, you're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a bonus follow-up episode on number 201 covering Marcus Aurelius, Stoicism, Practical Philosophy more generally. And this is Mark. This is Seth. I had asked to do this, you know, whenever we have a guest that tends to reorient the discussion, of course, we want to take advantage of the guest time. We had Ryan is a super impressive, super influential individual in this area. I hope we were not too (laughs) combative and obnoxious with him. I almost felt bad after the conversation because I didn't intend to put him on the spot and make him defensive. I wanted to preface the conversation by saying, I've got issues with Stoicism. Maybe we can address them. Maybe Marcus Aurelius is able to overcome them. And then somehow the whole thing just turned into kind of like a courtroom. (laughs) It was was like witness for the prosecution or something. So I didn't feel super good about the conversation after the fact. I thought it was a fine conversation, but I didn't feel good from the perspective of us talking about Marcus Aurelius specifically. Right. So if folks ask, why don't you have more partisans? You know, why don't you have, when you talk about Ayn Rand, why don't you have an objectivist come on? Why don't you, when you talk about trying to think of what what else is so polarizing? (laughs) I think it's okay for us to do this from time to time, especially if we've already had an episode or two covering the topic, but uh, it had its own virtues, let's just say that. (laughs) You know, it didn't do a great job covering the text, but we still had a lot of quotes in there floating around, and, you know, it's hard to just cover Marcus in isolation because he was so influenced by Epictetus, quoting Epictetus, and so I think the way that I had taken it of like, wow, okay, we've got this very repetitive text, We could just read a bunch of quotes from it and then say, oh, he's referring to the proof that's in Epictetus, but he's not spelling it out. Like, eh, I don't know how helpful that is. So I did want to correct that a little bit here. I kind of have two tasks in mind. I have a a couple quotes maybe to start with from the meditations and from this Pierre Hadot book that Ryan had recommended that really was invaluable to me in gathering up, like, what are the common themes? You know, if, if he's so repetitive, this guy actually says, oh yeah, 13 times he makes this point and lists the verses. Like, I'm not going to go through that trouble with this book and gather that information together. So that was nice. But then use those to talk a little less combatively, (laughs) just because it's you and me spitballing about practical philosophy and what else we might read, how else we want to explore this, what we kind of... I think I I gave my kind of critique of why I think it might be snake oil, right? Just self-help in general, right? If you just say, oh, you just got to keep reminding yourselves of these certain things. Like, well, is that what a mental health professional would (laughs) advise? Is this going to be a substitute for getting proper treatment? I just, I don't want people to, you know, it's, it's great if people find this helpful, but are there things about the psyche that would make the method that's being described here problematic? Do you have kind of an opening thought of what you want to get out of this? Or are you just doing this because I asked you to do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I don't know that there's anything I necessarily want to get out of it, except that to clear my conscience, I have to at least explore a little bit. the My issue with stoicism, like you said, I totally understand the therapeutic benefit. And Dylan had recommended we'd look at this Nussbaum book called Therapy of Desire. And, you know, in this book, uh, Nussbaum... I only read the uh, the last chapter, but 
she talks about Hellenistic philosophy. She talks about Epicureanism, Stoicism, and skepticism, and how each one of them treats philosophy as therapy. So they're all proposing to provide a path for their pupils, and they were competitive with each other for pupils that they claimed they could teach the best life or the best way of life. So she kind of examines what that would mean and what the teachings of you know Epicureans versus various Stoics, and then what kind of strength that gave the students who learned it versus what sorts of deficiencies from a philosophical perspective. And I think that's probably, if I was going to recommend reading to anybody, that would probably be it. But at least it felt, you know, my issue with Stoicism has been, it seems very individualistic. I get the therapeutic benefit. You know, I've done cognitive behavioral therapy myself for hyperventilation and anxiety. So <laughs> anxiety attacks, you know. And so I get that aspect of it. But something being an effective psychological coping mechanism doesn't make it a philosophy, doesn't necessarily provide an ethical foundation, doesn't explain how you should address the other, doesn't provide a political perspective on justice. And in reading Marcus Aurelius, I felt like at least there was something there I didn't see in Epictetus. There's a foundation of some kind of metaphysical element in Marcus Aurelius based on this notion of logos that I think gives him an underpinning, whether you agree with it or not, at least it forms a basis for why he says you should act the way you should. But the challenge is, it's something you discover purely through reason. So it sounds very platonic in some respects, or Greek. And there's something missing in the exhortation to overcome your passions and ignore your feelings. I think somehow makes the whole concept less rich because it doesn't acknowledge the realities of the human experience. But it also, if you strip everything out and you just say you have to reason your way to the logos and that will tell you what the right thing to do is, it doesn't provide any motivation for why you should do the right thing. I was thinking about sentiment in the moral theory of Smith and Hume, how I feel like that's a really compelling argument, the idea that reason can tell you what to do, but it can't encourage you or make you want to do it. So yeah, let's talk about the logos. I, this quote that I wanted to read, sort of randomly thumbing through this morning, the meditations, it's from book seven, verse eight, forget the future. When and if it comes, you'll have the same resource to draw on, the same logos. So he's using logos here and he makes Heraclitus an honorary super ancient Stoic, maybe the first Stoic, who also believed that if you can open your ears, the Logos is there for everyone to hear. Verse 9, everything is interwoven and the web is holy. None of its parts are unconnected. They are composed harmoniously and together they compose the world. One world made up of all things, one divinity present in them all, one substance and one law, the Logos that all rational beings share, and one truth, if this is indeed the culmination of one process, beings who share the same birth, the same logos. Number 10, all substance is soon absorbed into nature. All that animates it is soon restored to the logos. All trace of them both soon covered by time. 11, to a being with logos, an unnatural action is one that conflicts with the logos. I think most traditional ways of thinking about ethics, you know, I'm not sure if this is the case for Aristotle or something, but what I was raised on are not a matter of free-floating commands to do things. They really are that you have a metaphysical picture of what the relationship of the human being is to the universe. And there's some sensible way to act in light of that. So the obvious one is a deistic one. If there is a God and God wants certain things from us, 
then it seems rational, unless you're, you know, really being a Camus, a rebel, that defines what the good is. You'd want to do those things. Or if we are a certain kind of animal, you know, this is Aristotle, that has a certain telos to it, you know, you might think that, that our excellence, the excellence of human nature is to do such and such, then you want to learn about that. It might be that we have a natural tendency to follow that, but like you can't be sure that you're not going to be one of the parts that's malfunctioning unless you learn what it is and then you consciously fulfill that. So there's some relationship between is and ought. And it's only been later philosophy that has kind of stripped those two things away. And in fact, with practical stoicism now, what I see is not the universe is a certain way and so we should act accordingly, but does thinking this way work for you, which is very different. That doesn't require any metaphysical backing at all. And it's not even fair to call it utilitarian because in the strictest sense, that's not what it is. It's pragmatic, but pragmatic from a self-interested point of view. There's a section just further on from what you just read that I think expresses this to some extent. What is rational in different beings is related like the individual limbs of a single being and meant to function as a unit. This will be clearer to you if you remind yourself, I am a single limb of a larger body, a rational one. Or you could say a part, but then you're not really embracing other people. Helping them isn't yet its own reward. You're still seeing it only as the right thing to do. You don't yet realize who you're really helping. So the sentiment that's motivating here is that you're connected through the logos through reason. Reason is the connective tissue that human beings share. And it's through the shared notion of reason that you see the logos. You see essentially that relationship. So when you get to the point that you realize that helping other people is actually helping yourself because you're all connected, you're all one, but not in just a piece part way. It's not like we're a jigsaw puzzle and everybody's a part of this somehow. Instead, there's a more celestial body component to it, like where you're more than just a part, you're related as the parts of the body are related to the body as, as a whole, not as say the parts of a puzzle are related to the puzzle as a whole. It's got a kind of functional context to it that's different. Yeah, I have a quote here from Hadot talking about this relationship between the is and the ought. Among physics, ethics, and dialectics, there was no longer any preeminence of one discipline over the others. He's just talking about Stoicism in general here. For all three were related to the same logos or divine reason. This reason was equally present in the physical world, in the world of social life, since society is based on the common reason of all mankind, and in human speech and thought, that is, within the, the rational activity of judgment. Moreover, from the point of view of perfect action, which is that of the sage, these three disciplines mutually imply one another since it is one and the same logos or reason, which is to be found within nature, the human community, and individual reason. It's impossible for a good man not to be a physician and a dialectician. It's impossible for rationality to be realized separately in the three areas. For instance, to grasp reason fully in the course of events in the world without at the same time realizing reasons in one's own conduct. So Aristotle set up these things as separate areas, but for the Stoics, they're all one and the same. And in fact, them learning physics would be a matter of learning. I think he talks about the physics of desire. <laughs> the stoic physics that makes it seem as if events are woven inexorably by fate. The self becomes aware of itself as an island of freedom in the midst of the great sea of necessity. When you have awareness, you delimit your true self as opposed to what we used to believe was ourself. We see that this is the necessary condition of peace of mind. If I can discover the self I thought I was is not the self I am, then nothing can get to me. This whole realizing what is in my control and what is not in my control, 
realizing the oneness of all things, basically. You know, there's two layers of the oneness, of course. There's just the natural oneness that we all have the same source. And then when you explicitly reason it, that's supposed to provide an extra. The regular animals, even though they come out of the same logos, they fight and eat each other and whatever they need to do. But people who would realize, like this Aristotelian picture of a free-floating reason, that insofar as we participate in reason, we're, we're taking part in the divine mind itself, right? This went straight to Spinoza. So you then reduce social conflict. Insofar as everybody could actually be on the same virtuous page, then there would be explicit harmony and not just the harmony of the Heraclitean conflict-filled logos. Right. It's the harmony of idealism or of solipsism to me. And what I mean by that is you come to this recognition that we're all one and there's not like inherent dignity in the others that you somehow then come to respect or respond to or to acknowledge the otherness of the other. It's You acknowledge the sameness of the other. And in virtue of that, you realize that acting and comporting yourself towards them is the same way you should be comporting yourself you know, towards yourself. And so ultimately, the reason you do or don't do anything is whether or not it will be beneficial for you. And that's just a very impoverished set of motivations, I think, for action. All right, that's all you get. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support to get the full discussion. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.